the Lord Jesus who has come alongside believers, the one who has entered into a relationship through faith. Thank you for drawing nigh to us and causing us to draw nigh to you through repentant faith placed in Christ and Christ alone. We exalt you for this relationship that you have initiated and which you continue. Lord, even as we read in uh, our family devotions last night from John 10, that you persevere believers, that uh, you give a faith once for all, never to be lost. You begin a work of salvation and you complete it all the way to fruition. We thank you. We look forward to the culmination of all things when you would glorify us, when you'd return for your own, when you will set up your millennial kingdom, when you will right all wrongs and reverse the curse on this earth and the eternal state in which we can offer praise and worship to you unhindered by the fetters of sin that we experience in this fallen world. Lord, we would pray for some of the physical needs of our brothers and sisters, for Tim as he goes in for this uh, uh, operation on his lip, the carcinoma there, and we, uh, we continue to pray for some of the needs like uh, the Carlsons who have experienced three years of no permanent employment. We know that it has not been at a lack of prayer for Tina has sought your face and uh, so, Lord, would you sustain her and help her to exalt you to an unbelieving husband and children who need to see the gospel demonstrated, encourage her heart, help us as her church family to come alongside and encourage her. We would pray for those that uh, you would uh, be working in. Uh, we think of those that haven't been with us for a long time, like Mark Delcaverho and for the humbling situations you're taking away as you have taken his mother from this earth, and uh, we pray that you would uh, draw him to yourself and help us to come alongside. And for others that are battling with sin in life, that uh, uh, they would uh, feel the full weight of their sin, that they would, uh, they would uh, experience the pain that guilt brings through a, a conscience that has been activated and that they'd quick, be quick to repent and to have that fellowship restored with you and with others. And even as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table this morning, reveal to us any hidden sins in the resources of our heart and our lives that we would uh, bring them to you and ask for that covering and that forgiveness through Christ. Lord, we pray for Mark uh, and this new uh, job opportunity at Yale for these next few months. Would we be a source of encouragement and blessing to him in his walk with you? And uh, any others that would come to visit with us this Lord's Day, might we uh, uh, be a, a source of gospel grace in their lives, draw sinners to repentance and edify believers, build us up, mature us in Christ. We ask this in your matchless name, amen. Young adults, thank you for joining us. Goodbye. Enjoy your study with Tim. Let me invite the rest of you to join me in Colossians chapter 1. We will not remain there, but we will center some thoughts there.
Jesse, do you mind, or Ray, take one and pass them around if you would, please. We began a little mini-series last week considering reconciliation. And lest any of us... Paul, what do you do? I thought you were working today. This is a good... We prayed for your work assignment, so it's a good thing the Lord reorchestrates our prayers when that when they reaches His ears and whatnot, so glad to, glad to have you. But anyways, we've been... We're thinking about reconciliation. You might wonder, why, uh, why another study in uh, uh, my walk with Christ? You might say, for years, and uh, there's been various uh, studies, mark it down. There is nothing more practical for believers in Christ to study than biblical reconciliation. Because I'll just say flat out, if I haven't offended you, or you haven't offended me, give it time. It will occur. And so we must know how to interact with each other biblically when it comes to issues of life. So if you're not involved in some level of conflict in need of reconciliation, whether it was the uh, cold shoulder in the vehicle on the ride here or, or the co-worker that you are interacting with that you need to go ask forgiveness tomorrow morning, whatever the case may be, there are plenty of issues of life God gives us. It's been said, marriage is made in heaven but so are thunder and lightning. So even for those of you that are married, it provides opportunities for us to display gospel graces in those opportunities. We need to know and understand biblical principles and remember them so that they are in our default system, uh, our automatic gut response having been redeemed. We even need to know how to prevent conflict. So it's not just a matter of dealing with conflict, but how can we even prevent it in life? A lot of what would dub themselves as Christian ministries exist today, and they exist for reconciliation. There's a lot of even secular companies out there that talk about uh, uh, conciliation in uh, the workplace, and uh, but the gospel is the key to it. One of those ministries that's out there is Peacemaker Ministries, and I uh, the last time I ordered some brochures for them, I thanked them for changing it because in this uh, trifold brochure that they put out which had great biblical principles on reconciliation, they had this new call-out feature around the gospel, helping people see visually that that is the key to it all, which is what I think we find here in Colossians 1. If you have not made your way there yet, just one of many passages that we could center our thoughts around. Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20 we are told that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. God is at work to reconcile sinful, rebellious man to Himself 
and himself to them. It's a mutual exchange that those who were in hostility to him can be brought near as friends. And so salvation is about reconciliation. Go on to the third chapter, Colossians 3, about the ministry of reconciliation that he has entrusted to us. Colossians 3, verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, and so if we cross-reference what we just read in Colossians 1, when he says the chosen of God, those who have been reconciled, in other words, holy and beloved, we are to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. We're going to draw some connections from this in just a moment. But I thought that it would behoove us as we started a new year, 2015, last week, to just spend two or three weeks considering reconciliation. And we're going to get to the forgiveness aspect today. We were kind of ramping up to it last week. One teacher had said that you are never more like God than when you forgive. Because that's what's offered in Christ, forgiveness of sin. So we need to, you know, if, if He is Savior, Redeemer, and one who forgives sin, here is the infinitely holy one, the offended party, forgiving a lifetime of iniquity who he's entrusted the ministry of reconciliation to who are to forgive the temporary sins against them by fellow sinners. So we're talking about the offended one pardoning iniquity and treason against him. And so last week we started with the first concept, guilt. That there, we must establish guilt before we can ever talk about forgiveness. Because man's gone on a war to defeat this concept. Because without guilt, there is no sin. Bless you. We want to erase words like sin and repentance and contrition and atonement and restitution and redemption from the public discourse. And so there's this all-out war to hush guilt. Instead, they've invented another model, not a guilt model that the Scriptures establish, but uh, uh, a victim model. Victims aren't responsible for what they do. They're just reacting to uh, poor situations in life. You know, it's, uh, it's the idea that I'm a blank slate and either, either my mother treated me wrong or the people in the workplace. There's always somebody to pin it on so that I don't have to own up to it that I'm not responsible for what I do, that I'm a casualty of what happens to me. And you say, yeah, Pastor Parker, you are an issue. Uh, but uh, perhaps the most pervasive tool that they use to redefine issues of life and escape blame is the sin as disease model, classifying everything as a disease. You know, let's rename it. Let, we, we can rename drunkards uh, or, or, 
as, as alcoholics, right, that are a victim of alcohol and their addiction so that they can check into a clinic for treatment for their chemical dependencies. Children who are constantly defying authority structures, whether it be their parents or their teachers, can escape condemnation by being labeled hyperactive or ADHD. Gluttons, I don't have to take ownership at the buffet because I suffer from an eating disorder. Even the man who throws away his family's livelihood to pay for prostitutes is supposed to be an object of compassion because he's just addicted to sex. You see how this model plays into the idea of no responsibility, no culpability. So, what does the Bible teach us about guilt? That it's real. There, there's no such thing as false guilt. All guilt is, is, is real. The Bible establishes our guilt-worthiness, that uh, we are sinners by nature and sinners by choice. So, what goes along with guilt? Uh, there's, a, there's a tool God's given to activate guilt in, the, in, in, in somebody's life. You remember what it was that we started discussing last week? Conscience. So, so if, we, if we defined guilt last week as a legal liability or a culpability to punishment, it's, according to Scripture, it's a fact, not a feeling. It is what we are. And so God's given us this conscience, as George, George reminded us of. Uh, I was reading this week, and in, in a book I was reading, there was a great illustration I had to steal from, from Dr. Somerville's uh, book on depression. He, he gave this illustration of a college student, and uh, uh, he said she stayed up late studying for exams. It was freezing cold, so she had an electric heater close to her bed. Lying down for a second to warm up, she was soon fast asleep. As her body was just starting to feast on this delicious bit of sleep and warmth, she was rudely disturbed by noise in the hallway. But this time, she could not block out the raucous college students. They started pounding on her door louder and louder until she roused to find that her hair was on fire. The smoke detector had gone off and saved her life. And I thought, yeah, that's a good picture, a word picture for us of what this gift is, the tool God's given us called the conscience. It doesn't always necessarily point out what's wrong. A smoke detector doesn't tell you where the fire is. It just says, smoke, help, issue here. (laughs) That's all it does, and that's what the conscience does for us. We are told by Paul, as he addresses this with the the Romans, God's... God's in, in Romans 2, he says that Gentiles who are without the law have the law written within. So even unbelievers have this conscience that God's given. It's, been, it's the law of God written on the heart. So we've been given this gift. Conscience tells us that there's a God that we're accountable to. There's ways of minimizing it and hushing it up, and we, we looked at some of the things we should not engage uh, we ought to uh, not minimize guilt. We ought to not cover up and try to silence and sear a conscience. We ought to be cautious to retrain our conscience according to biblical truth, to exercise it, correct? 
So if we don't deaden it by ignoring, it makes us miserable when we sin. Our heart cries guilty, condemned, and lost. It's in a, being in a state of guilt before a holy God. Guilt drives us to put trust in Christ. It draws us closer to the gospel. If you, if you know Christ, it, it, it's what... What, what helps you deal with a conscience over your sin? You, you run back to the cross and are reminded of your cleansing. You seek that cleansing, that fellowship, 1 John 1, 9. So guilt drives us to, to put trust in Christ. When, when we live of the gospel as a believer, when we're guilty of sinning, and we go to the Lord, it's where He reminds us not guilty. Romans 8.1, that I'm no longer a slave to my sin, I can do what is right. Romans 6, sin doesn't have power over me anymore. I can become more righteous. So God can use turmoil and despair for good. John Piper in his book, When the, when the, when the Darkness Will Not Lift, puts it this way. And how, how despair is kind of a blessing if, it, if it's what drives us to the cross and the gospel. He says, start with despair. Despair of finding any answers in yourself. I pray that you will cease from all efforts to look inside yourself for the rescue you need. I pray that you will do what only desperate people can do, namely cast yourself on Christ. May you say to Him, you are my only hope. I have no righteousness in myself. I'm overwhelmed with sin and guilt. I am under the wrath of God. My own conscience condemns me and makes me miserable. I am perishing. Darkness is all about me. Have mercy upon me. I trust you. So the second concept we introduced last week in regards to guilt is repentance. We've got a new default position as a believer. We used to minimize sin, we'd, we'd suppress it as Romans, Romans 1 teaches that we do, and uh, when we're embroiled in some kind of, uh, we won't even call it a conflict, let's call it an intense moment of fellowship like what you might have with your spouse or something. You're no longer deflecting, but as a believer, you own up to your sin. It's like, you know what? There's a lot of truth to what they have to say. I don't like the attitude that they're confronting with me and my sin on and then the whole process, but you know what? I need to own up to this because I am a sinner. So we own up to our guilt because we've begun a, a, a life of repentance. And I don't remember how far I know that first slide on repentance we got through. But, so let's jump in on the, the second one on uh, repentance where it's repentance continued. Yes, repentance is something that takes place in our heart and mind. But it inevitably leads to change in other areas. If, if we repent of our sin, it shows. It's got some manifestations to it. Um, it doesn't mean that we've got every mark of restitution, reconciliation, or, or regret. But I think that the last passage I... I threw out for us to contemplate was, was in Luke 3.8 when John the Baptist was baptizing people and the religious hypocrites were coming to him and said, you know what, we want a part of this. This seems like the thing to do. 
And he sends them away. He says, no, first of all, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If we understand our heart, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, even things that we're supposed to do, that, that God tells us to do, we can do wrong, correct? Can we not? And, and we, we can come far short in our repenting. And we had mentioned 2 Corinthians 7.10, that there is a sorrow that does not equal repentance. If you, if you face the guilt of your sin and you feel crummy, you feel the guilt, guilt-worthiness, and you turn to Christ and say, you know what, I, I, Lord, I need cleansing, the wretched man that I am. We can deceive ourselves and still allow pride to um, captivate us. So, some of the effects that uh, repentance, how, how does repent, what does repentance look like? Uh, one of them we mentioned, uh, mentioned at the top of the slide, the restitution. The word meaning to set things right. If, some, if, if a sinner like us is repentant, we must fulfill any obligation to the offended party. I didn't give you any of the references there, but if you wanted to jot down a couple of cross-references, you could, you could jot down Exodus 22.1 or Leviticus 5.15, or if you want a more extended passage in the New Testament, Luke 19.1-10. through 10. Suppose the sin that you committed was the sin of embezzlement. If you turn from that, what would your turning from look like? What would your repentance look like? Okay, paying back. I remember years ago, I, w- I, I think I was a teenager. I don't remember my childhood very well, but I remember that our church treasurer had stolen thousands of dollars from the church. In other words, from God. And when treasurer and husband stood before the church, it was basically, well, uh, I'm sorry, but, you know, I, I didn't. And it was kind of a meandering through. Uh, this is, it kind of addresses why we want to make sure that we talk in biblical terms of repentance, not necessarily of an apology. Apologies don't require any kind of interchange of the forgiveness aspect, that I am racked over my sin, will you help restore the relationship? That's what repentance does. There was no restitution. Always leaving a question mark as to was there, was there repentance? Don't know. If somebody is repenting of their wrong, their sin, there's going to be reconciliation. When our sin has resulted in a broken relationship with another, true repentance causes us to do whatever we can to transform the conflict into a peaceful and edifying friendship. One of those passages I could illustrate this with is is Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is a familiar passage. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing some relationship and worship issues. And in Matthew 5, 
24. Just a little context of the previous verses. Back up in verse 21 is where he said, uh, you've heard it said, the ancients were told, uh, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Think about how Jesus addresses the issues of sin where he did not minimize. He says, don't be confident in the fact that you didn't kill somebody. You ought to be racked in your soul that you don't like this person. It speaks to the heart issue. And so that's what he starts teaching on here in the Sermon on the Mount. So he addresses relationship through the lens of our public worship to the Lord. And in Matthew 5, 23, if you're presenting your offering at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. What practicality this has for us on a Lord's Day that uh, we're taking to the Lord's table that ought to be sobering to us as we think about reconciliation, as we think about any contributions of sin that we bring to the table. Uh, and I'm not talking about this table, the table of life. Um, I've shared before about pastoring religious hypocrites who would be sitting in the same pews partaking of the Lord's table and out in the parking lot they have had these interchanges where you don't ever speak to me again. They're not rightly related to each other and yet they fooled themselves into thinking they're rightly related to the Lord. There must be reconciliation. There must be an owning up to the guilt that our conscience makes us aware of. There must be this second aspect of repentance, restitution, reconciliation. Maybe it looks like regret. True repentance might not always be accompanied by emotion. Some of you are emotionless people. That's not how you're wired. You don't cry. Maybe you do. Don't either think that it is or is not a necessary indication of repentance. In many cases, the feeling of sorrow corroborates other evidences and points to a real change in thinking. You look at some, uh, we were reading through Psalm 51 last week, and David, how he was racked in his own soul over his sin that spilled, spills forth on the pages. But just because somebody has an emotional response alone doesn't prove their repenting is genuine. So let's move from where we've been to this third aspect, this third concept involved in reconciliation, forgiveness. There are a lot of great resources that have been written, a lot of bad resources that are out there, but I've mentioned uh, Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. I know MacArthur's written a book on forgiveness. Jay Adams has written a good book on forgiveness. Wendell Miller... So there's, there's some decent resources out there. When we think of forgiveness, the Greek term is aphiemi, meaning to send away or to release. When you think of forgiveness, think of the term release. 
In reference to sin, it means to pardon. It's also rightly been described as a promise because when God forgives, He promises He will never hold our sins against us. Where does He do that? You remember? Where does God promise not to remember our sin? Jeremiah 31. Underscore that in your mind. If you wanted to uh, uh, underline it on your handout, we'll be there. And actually, if somebody wants to open to that and, and uh, let me know so you can read it, read it for us. So let's think through this. Forgiveness. God's forgiveness. That is man's greatest need. To be forgiven of his sin. And I would suggest that it does not just have a weight or a bearing before salvation, but after as well. We're going to make that connection. Man's greatest need before and after salvation is forgiveness. When somebody is brought into a saving relationship with God, it's what theologians refer to as judicial forgiveness, because God acts as a judge declaring us righteous forever and delivering us from, the etern- from eternal condemnation. Did anybody open to the Jeremiah passage for us? Did you read it for us, George? Okay, so God promises forgiveness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the most forgiven on planet earth. Christians are. Unbelievers are not forgiven. And if we are the most forgiven on planet earth, we need to be the most forgiving. That's what Jesus teaches Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the next chapter, in Matthew 6, verse 12. So, if forgiveness is pardon and has the aspect of promise, maybe the best definition of forgiveness is the promise of pardon. Contemplate that. The promise of pardon. The basis of what what is the basis uh, of our forgiveness? Talk to me. What's the basis of our forgiveness, Paul? The grace of God. I was hoping we were going to meander around a little bit and then get to the real answer. Yeah, the grace of God, divine grace. We don't merit forgiveness. If if God acts as the judge to make a declaration. And a promise of pardon. It's based on divine grace, not merit. The basis is His goodness. When God says that I remember your sin no more, that is not because He doesn't have a good memory. God is omniscient. He knows all. But He promises pardon. He promises to pardon. 
So that is judicial forgiveness. When, when God brings us into relationship, He forgives our sins, past, present, and future. How do we know that He forgave all our sins in Christ? Every one of them were future at the point in time. But after salvation, it's more of parental forgiveness because God's now our loving Father. He wants to free us from the temporal discomfort of His chastening, Hebrews 12. So we are to be perpetrators of forgiveness. He's forgiven us. We are to forgive others. He's forgiven an infinite net, uh, debt of sin. Ours is a temporal debt against fellow sinners. We're to forgive one another just as God has forgiven us. Notice in the Ephesians and Colossians passages there, when we grant it to somebody, we are promising not to remember. If we practice the same kind of forgiveness as God, it is still a promise of pardon. How does the world teach reconciliation and forgiveness? They say, well, just, just, just forget it. Well, you know what? I can't forget it. I need to remember it so that I can pardon it. That is the biblical view. When we grant it to somebody, we are saying, I will not remember. I will not dwell upon it. The Bible doesn't teach forgive and forget, as the old adage goes. But forgive in order to forget. God never forgets. You look at the Bible, doesn't God keep a list? He catalogs much of the sins of Old Testament Israel and other believers. They're all through the Scriptures. How would you like to be the poster child that, uh, like Diotrephes, the one who loved to have preeminence? God records sins everywhere. But he determined and promised not to hold against the repentant sinner. It's a promise of pardon. So when we promise to pardon, here's some of the commitment we're making to each other. You know, you wrong me, I wrong you. And you say, you know what? I'm extending forgiveness. Here's the uh, threefold commitment. You are saying, I will not remind you of this sin. Unless it's absolutely necessary for, for your good. Wouldn't that ward off a lot of arguments? You get in, uh, in, embroiled in a, rela- in, in a relationship and, and uh, spouse or child or co-worker wrongs you like they've done before and the first thing you want to do is remind them, see, this is what you've always done. So forgiveness hasn't taken place. Biblical re- reconciliation has not taken place, therefore God won't bless it. So it's a promise. I will not remind you of this sin. Are there times to remind of sin? Yes. If there is a sinful pattern of life, sometimes it's the right time, but we better pray about and ask God for discernment as to whether or not this is the right time because I doubt if it is because it's going to be a response out of anger rather than one of, of gospel grace. Second of all, it is a commitment, a promise. I will not mention it to anyone else unless absolutely necessary. The only time, biblically, you can be right with God and talk behind somebody's back is when you're talking good. Yeah? If somebody's not present, don't talk about them unless you're using them as, a, as the most grand illustration, as the most humble or godly person in this situation. I won't mention it to anyone else. I'll talk to you about your sin 
expects you to talk to me about my sin, but not others. And thirdly, that I will not allow my mind to dwell on it. Why is that important in the process? Rid of bitterness. You know, the more you think, maybe initially the issue was no big deal to you, but the more you contemplate it and dwell on it and start stewing on it, those root of bitterness starts to grow. So, let's unpack this thought a little bit further. Whom do we forgive? We need to think about the attitude of forgiveness before we talk about the act. We might not be able to be fully reconciled to everyone. Paul says, live at peace so much as depends upon you. People might sin against us, and you know, and that might not be able to, what, what if you want to get together with them for coffee to talk about your relationship, and they just keep on putting you down, you know, turning it down and putting you off. But in our attitude towards them, we should, should never be one of anger, bitterness, resentment, or any kind of ill will. We should also treat them kindly and graciously. We're commanded to love everyone. So we need to desire their best, which means we'll do everything we can to bring them to repentance, and we will always be ready to reconcile. Just like Psalm 86.5, I didn't give you that reference. If you wanted to jot that down, that's about God. And if we are to be His image bearers, we are to exemplify that. So, attitudinally, that first point, attitudinally, it's we're willing. We're all over it. Can't wait to be involved in forgiveness. In Mark 11.25, that first passage referenced. Anybody there? Mark 11.25. Whenever you stand praying, so stop for a moment, similar Expression as what we read in Matthew's account. So in Mark eleven twenty five, again, you're involved in, in public worship here. You stand praying, forgive. That is your response. If you've got anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Now, when the text tells us, when you stand praying, Forgive. What tense is that in? Past, present, future? It's a present imperative. It's a command. Keep forgiving is the idea here. It is a daily effort with several times throughout the day. So if we're constantly comparing our relationship with others to our relationship with God... And God's attitude is one of forgiveness. It's perpetual. How many times throughout the day does our Father forgive us? Lots. 
How many times, Lord, shall I forgive my brother? What's the response? Boy, 70 times 7, the, the indication, uh, however many times he can sin against you in, a, in the day is as many times as you forgive him in a day. Our Father is so patient. So attitudinally is that we are willing to forgive. It's, it's constant. It's perpetual. We, we conclude from these verses on the first bullet point and others concerning love and graciousness that any time somebody wrongs us, we should pray to God in this sort of vein. Father, you know what's happened between me and Joe Blow over here. Help me not to be angry. Help me not to be bitter at him, nor to seek revenge in any way, but help me to love him and desire only his good. Lord, did you work in his heart? Bring him to repentance so that we can have a reconciled relationship. Use me in any way that you see fit. For a believer that that help might involve a confrontation according to Matthew 18. Why is it that confrontation might be needed for an attitude of forgiveness? Because what if there is no repentance? What if there is no repentance? Which brings us to the second point. Based on the transaction. Based on verbal acknowledgement of repentance. Luke 17.3 is one of the passages cited there. Shows our responsibility to those who sin against us to be one of confrontation. Why does brother confront brother and sister confront sister? Because we take the initiative. I'm reading through... our. Proverbs with the kids right now. That's our morning devotions. Today is the 11th, so it was the 11th proverb. We read in the book of Proverbs that the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You think you've got a relationship with somebody that uh, um, just surface level. How how the bear's doing or how's the weather? Surface level. Kiss of an enemy can be deceitful, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. To know that you've got my back, I got yours. When you come to me over, over a sin issue, it's because you are doing so out of love. And besides, our loyalty is not just to each other. I love how Stuart Scott put this in his... Uh, um, I forget if I got this out of the exemplary husband or his book, From Pride to Humility. He says, dealing with sin is more about the glory of God than the thickness of your skin. Why do we engage in reconciliation? It's not just because we love each other. It's because we're devoted to the glory of God. He's devoted to reconciliation. So have, we, we start off with an attitude of forgiveness and then we initiate things. Uh, another set of verses I'd put alongside Luke 17.3 would be Galatians 6.1 and 2. 
Brethren, if a man be overtaken a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So, this transaction is based on verbal acknowledgement of repentance. Just as God doesn't make His promise of pardon to people unless they repent, neither do we make a promise of pardon without repentance. We can't actually say, I forgive you, to people unless they admit their sin and repent. So the transaction, we have an attitude of forgiveness. We want the reconciliation in the relationship, but they might be the, the wall preventing that reconciliation. So there's, a, there's the rub with the transaction. It's conditional in that we can only be fully reconciled to those who repent. Those who refuse to repent of their sin aren't forgiven by God, neither will they be forgiven by us. So the broken relationship will continue. God only forgives based on the vicarious sacrifice of Christ through our repentance. It is not unconditional. Here's what's wrong with so much about what people teach about God, it's not the God of the Bible, that God, God loves you and has a great plan for your life that says nothing about repentance. God's not going to take a pass at sin. So, so Luke 17.3 says, our, our, our part of responsibility to those who sin against us is to confront them, and if we've truly dealt with our own hard attitudes first, then we proceed. We can't be fully reconciled to those who haven't repented because if we did, we couldn't continue the process described in the verses of Scripture. Now, there's a couple of ramifications that I want us to dialogue about next week in regards to uh, who we forgive and how we go about it. But let's think about attitude and transaction this week and ask the Lord to show us any kind of relationships in which we can have a homework assignment and pursue faithful obedience. Would you pray with me? Father, we know that all of Scripture delivers us as guilt-worthy of breaking Your law We thank You for drawing us to salvation. That there could be that forgiveness of our sin through Christ and His atonement. We ask You, O God, to not only reveal the full weight of our guilt, but help us in our repentance to be thorough, to be biblical, to be quick. And as we engage in forgiveness, Give us the godly attitudes that your spirit produces, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, that you would help us to be gentle in the way that we interact with others. Help us to be quick to take initiative, to see relationships salvaged, to see relationships strengthened, not because we take a pass at sin, but because we treat it biblically in love, out of our love for fellow believers. Help us to be quick this week as well to take the gospel to our co-workers and our neighbors. Give us opportunities to turn the conversations to spiritual matters. 
and to talk with people about the forgiveness they so desperately need by God. We'll entrust it all to your work, asking that you'd be glorified. We pray this in the matchless name of Christ our Savior. Amen.